I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Title of our sermon, True Forgiveness. Today we, we talk about what I might call one of the biggest problems, not only in our society, but also in our churches, and that is the problem of unforgiveness. People are walking around in bitterness and resentment against one another. Some for very real, very terrible offenses. Others for imagined offenses. Some harbor unforgiveness for themselves, for offenses against themselves. Others harbor unforgiveness on behalf of a loved one who has been offended or who has been hurt. Picking up the mantle of their pain, picking up the mantle of their sorrow. Unforgiveness is something that many live with, something that many rest in, because unforgiveness provides some measure of validation for our feelings or some degree of proof that we care. We sometimes feel as though if we forgive someone, that means we approve of their actions or that it doesn't bother us anymore or that we don't hurt anymore or that we don't care about a loved one who has been hurt. Yet what we understand from the scriptures is that this is a flesh response, not a spirit response. We learn that harboring unforgiveness is one of the absolute worst things that we can do, not just for them, but even more so for ourselves. By holding on to unforgiveness, we harm ourselves, our own spirit. We short-circuit God's ability to work in us as he would desire, to use us as he would desire, to give us good success as we would desire. Unforgiveness often turns into bitterness, resentment, which not only harm our spirit, but also alienate us from the fellowship with God and even with God's people. I have also seen on many occasions unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment manifest itself physically and mentally in people's lives, causing illness, reducing motivation, bringing on depression and anxiety and apathy, among other things. Unforgiveness is an insidious foe in our lives, made stronger by the fact that our flesh loves it so very much and can justify it in any number of ways. Today we're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to approach it in two distinct ways. Oftentimes when I've preached about forgiveness at Legacy Baptist Church, I've preached what, is, what I'm terming today passive forgiveness. Passive forgiveness, a type of forgiveness which needs no initiation and serves only to release you from the offenses done against you and the ones that you love. But today we're also going to talk about what I'll call active forgiveness. Passive forgiveness does not lead to reconciliation of relationships. It only, it only produces a personal release from unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, and it gets things right with myself before the person and with myself and God. Active forgiveness is a type of forgiveness where it begins with an initiation by the offender, repentance, asking for it. It involves repentance and then you give your forgiveness to that person. And this is what leads to a restoration of fellowship between you and the offender. Both of these types of forgiveness are given to us, exemplified in the Bible. Both are very important, and both serve different and very needful purposes. Over the past couple of weeks, I've mentioned the inspiration for our little mini-series as having been rooted in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. 18? I think it might be 17. Let me double-check that. 17. Luke chapter 17. I even have it there, actually. Luke 17. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, where the Bible says this. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. We talked about that over the last two weeks, speaking first about offenses as it relates to false teaching, and then last week on offenses as it relates to the weaker brethren. This week we consider verses 3 and 4, where Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. 
And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Jesus speaks here of what we would call active forgiveness. The process begun, if need be, by announcing the offense, then a, the offender repents, and if he repents, then you forgive him. This transaction done with the goal of restoring fellowship among believers. And we mentioned, as I preached through this on Sunday night, of the link between this and the previous two verses about offenses. That we dare not offend a brother, that we dare not do so, but that doesn't mean there are not going to be problems among the brethren. And when those problems arise, when there are trespasses, when there are offenses, when there is uh, um, sorrow or, or, or damage done because of words, because of actions, because of inaction, because of lack of words, we need to get it right. We need to make sure that we're walking in fellowship one with another. So that's active forgiveness. We're going to talk about active forgiveness second today. I'd like to start first with this concept of passive forgiveness. This is the one which I've most often focused on in the pulpit. This is the one that is perhaps hardest for us as, as humans to grasp. And the one that is, is most rarely thought about when we think about forgiveness. And we glean this doctrine of passive forgiveness from an example of our Lord Jesus Christ that he laid for us at the, on the cross. The command for us to do so is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. That's where I asked you to turn this morning. You're in Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. The Bible says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. As Paul lists several commands which are filed under the category of putting off the old man and putting on the new in Ephesians chapter 4, he speaks finally of the necessity of putting off various things. He speaks of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. Let's understand these words just briefly. The word bitter like our English word bitter, is actually speaking of a flavor sensation. That when you put something in your mouth and it has a, a, a flavor to it that is bitter, that uh, causes perhaps your, your uh, lips to pucker or that causes you to recoil a little bit. The other day, um, my uh, son was eating a lemon. I don't know why he was eating a lemon, but he was eating a lemon. And the, the, the look on his face as he was eating the lemon was kind of that furrowed brow, the... The, you know, the, the puckered lips, but he was eating it. And, and you could tell he was enjoying it, but he, he still had the furrowed brow and everything because you just can't help it when you're eating a lemon because it is bitter, right? Lemons are bitter. Grapefruits can often be bitter. And so you do things such as heap sugar on top of them to make them less bitter. But that's the idea of bitterness. It is a, a flavor sensation, but we know in the English, just as they did in the Greek, that it is also a concept emotionally that speaks of a person whose thoughts, words, or actions have a sharpness to them, an anger, a general disagreement. A bitter person is a person who has allowed circumstances, something in their life is causing them to be unpleasant, to be angry, to be um, sharp in their spirit. He says, let all bitterness pass away, be put away from you. Then he speaks of wrath. Wrath is, is a word that, that means passion. And it speaks of uh, physical manifestations of anger. Anger, of course, negative emotions excited by offenses. Clamor is a word which means an outcry. This might mean making, we might, might consider it making a scene when you're upset at something and so you make a scene. Uh, oftentimes this can be a passive aggressive form of anger where you're not necessarily um, sounding angry. You're not yelling and screaming. Maybe you are, but uh, you're making a scene and everybody knows that you're angry. Uh, even if it doesn't really sound like you're angry, that's sort of a, a deal, kind of that passive aggressive anger. And then malice. Malice is pur purposeful evil or wickedness against another. And the reason why it's important that we have Ephesians 4.31 paired with Ephesians 4.32 
is because so often in the Bible, so often in many elements of life, to understand what something is, we need to understand or it helps us to understand what it is not. We don't, I don't get a lot of comments about Legacy Baptist Church's website, but the majority of the comments I have received about that website are from a one particular page on our website called What We Are Not. The What We Are Not page on our website is a page that helps define what Legacy Baptist Church is by telling people what we aren't. And by telling people what we aren't, it helps people understand where we stand on things. So we'd say that we aren't Dominion theologians and we, aren't, we don't um, believe in theonomy theology and we um, are not Calvinist, Reformed theology, and we are not Arminian in our theology. And all of these knots are there and those knots are intended to help people understand us by understanding what we aren't. That's very helpful. This is what Paul uh, and really the Bible in a whole regularly does as well. We see this all throughout the Proverbs. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we call, um, it, it's, it's a type of parallelism. It's an, what we call antithetical parallelism where uh, we see an, uh, one thing and then we see the negative of that or we see a negative and then we see the positive and in doing so it helps us, helps define what something is by defining what something is not. That's what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. That what forgiveness is not is the manifestations of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. This is not forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? He says instead in verse 32... Be kind and tender-hearted. Be kind and tender-hearted. That's what it means to be forgiving one another. Kind and tender-hearted. And the command we see is based upon an example. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In order to understand how we are to forgive, we need to understand how we have been forgiven. And a great portion of how we are going to understand this concept of forgiveness is going to be rooted in how we understand Christ's forgiveness toward us. So let's talk about divine forgiveness for a few moments. At Legacy Baptist Church, we recognize God's forgiveness to be manifest through salvation, through Christ's work on the cross. We call this propitiation. Propitiation speaks of the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Paul tells us that mankind is justified freely by God's grace, God's grace being the motivator, and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is the means. God's grace is the motivator. Redemption is the means by which we have obtained this justification. Justification the concept that God looks at me and he declares me righteous on behalf of something else, this something else being Jesus Christ's death on the cross. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died upon the cross, his blood atoned for the sin of mankind, that on that day, forgiveness for sin was ultimately and finally purchased for every man, woman, and child who would ever live. To this end, we read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. That would be who he's writing to, and he's writing to believers, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He became the propitiation for the sins, not just of a subset of humanity, but for the sin of the entire world. The wrath of God against man's sin was satisfied on the cross through the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ. 
And though we find this satisfaction to be complete, as we look back at Romans 3, we find that not everyone will be a true recipient of the benefits of Christ's payment on the cross. That this propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, is realized in the lives of those who put their faith in Christ's blood. Upon this act of faith, the Bible says we are declared righteous. That's the term for justification. And so we are brought into a personal relationship with the Father by virtue of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his Son. In this way, the Bible says, God can be both just because he has paid for sin, sin is dealt with, and he can justify all who believe. And he can justify all who believe, not on their own merit, but on the merit of the one who paid for sin. He can be both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate the concept. Imagine you and I owe a debt that neither of us could ever pay. The price is so high, in fact, that you can't even afford to pay off the interest that the debt accrues in any given month. In this situation, I not only lack the means to take care of my own debt, but I also lack the means to help anybody with their own debt. I can't help you with your debt because your debt is, be, uh, I have my own debt. I'm in debt. I can't help you with your debt. You're in debt. You can't help me with my debt. If our lender is just, we will have to suffer the consequences of defaulting on that debt. Our lender is just, therefore we know that we are going to suffer the consequences of default. But imagine that lender has a son, and that son has great wealth, and in his love and in his mercy he pays off your debt, and he pays off my debt. He purchases our debt from his father. Now, if he purchases our debt from his father, like with, with uh, lending agreements, mortgages and such, where people will, you'll, you'll, you'll get your mortgage with one company and then your more, the, the, the lender will sell off that debt to someone else, so someone else now holds that debt, your obligation is completely satisfied with the person who you got the mortgage from. Now your obligation is to the person that bought the debt from them. In his love and mercy, this son buys the debt from his father. He pays off the debt. He purchases the debt. At this point, the debt has been transferred. There is nothing between us and the father because that debt has been satisfied. The debt has now been transferred to the son. We now owe the son. He holds the authority of what to do with that debt. Well, the father's requirement was sinless perfection. That was the father's requirement. Nobody could reach it. Nobody could pay it. Nobody could do that. So the son pays off our debt, and now he has the right to set the terms of that debt. And he has set the terms, not upon sinless perfection, but upon faith in him. That if we will put our full faith and trust in what he did on the cross, that that debt will be paid in full. The son, having paid our debt, offers to completely dissolve the debt to release us entirely upon that one exclusive condition that we accept the gift of grace, that we don't try to pay off the debt, that we repent of dead works and put our faith in God, that we throw ourselves at his mercy, that we trust in his promises. And in doing so, the father has the right both to be just and to justify those that believe on his son. As we turn our minds back toward the concept of our forgiveness of others, Paul tells us that as we put on the new man, we are to put away evil speaking, uh, evil actions, evil intentions, that we are to put on tenderhearted, loving, kind forgiveness, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. So the question becomes, as we've explored the gospel just briefly this morning, how has God, for Christ's sake, forgiven you? Totally. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the forgiveness is complete, is it not? Past, present, and future, everything. What did you do to earn it? Nothing. It is without merit. Did you have to ask for it before God sent his son to die? Indeed, no, we weren't even born yet. He preemptively sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. In spite of your wrongs against him. God has secured forgiveness not just for those who would seek it of him, but even for those who never will. 
Jesus' blood paid for the sin of every man and woman who will ever occupy the torments of hell. They are not there for any reason but because they have rejected the payment. Thus we read in John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemnation rests upon sinners because they've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. A gift already purchased, a propitiation already secured. But it does no good to a man unless he believes on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So let's consider then this idea of forgiveness on these terms. The word forgiveness here is interesting in that it is somewhat unique in Scripture. When we talk about active forgiveness, as we look at forgiveness over the next, uh, as we study active forgiveness, which we'll talk about in Luke 17 and various other passages, there's an entirely different Greek word that's used. The word that we find here is unique in that it speaks of a voluntary forgiveness without ever being requested or before being requested. It's a word that's rooted in the word grace, whereas the other word, the other word for forgiveness is rooted in the word release or to send away. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. In Ephesians 4.32, as a reflection of God's forgiveness toward us, the word that's given, that is, is translated here, forgiving and forgiven, is a word that speaks not of a response to being asked, but rather releasing a person whether or not they've ever asked for it. That's, what it. that's what Jesus did for mankind. And that's reflected in this word here. This is how God has treated mankind. And this is how God asks us to treat others. And this is what I speak of when I talk about passive forgiveness. It is not uncommon for us as humans to feel as though our obligation to forgive only extends as far as the offender's willingness to ask for forgiveness or to the extent that they prove that they are sorry for their actions. But God has called us to a different mindset. God has called us to reject any words, actions, or attitudes which lend themselves to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, or malice, to reject them outright. That even if we feel we have the right, or even if humanly speaking, we do have the right to be angry. We do have the right to be bitter. We do have the right to, eat, to speak evil. We do have the right to malice. Paul says, put it off anyway. And instead, put on tender-hearted forgiveness. Instead, our interactions ought to be defined by this passive forgiveness, which exists completely outside of the attitude or the actions of the person who has offended us. God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ operates completely outside of man's worth, his willingness to ask for it, so it should be among God's people. Jesus died on the cross, whether or not man would ask for it or not, and so too we ought to have a passive forgiveness, a layer of forgiveness that releases others from offenses against us in our own hearts, whether or not they'll ever ask for it or whether or not they'll ever deserve it. When you've been wronged, when your loved one is wronged, when you have been hurt, when they have been hurt, when you are being hurt, you are called by God to operate in a constant state of personal forgiveness for these offenses. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean that the relationship between you two has been reconciled. It hasn't. If, if somebody refuses to ask for forgiveness, if somebody is perpetually harming you or someone that you love, your relationship with them is not going to be good. And this doesn't mean your relationship with them is going to be good or reconciled. It does not mean that you pretend like they haven't hurt you or aren't hurting you or you pretend like it didn't happen. It doesn't mean those things. That's not what this means. The concept of passive forgiveness does not imply that you simply roll over and take abuse. The concept of passive forgiveness does not imply that you ignore wrongs done against you. But it does mean that in your heart, you have released those that have wronged you to God. And you're not holding in your heart the bitterness and the anger and the wrath and the clamor and the evil speaking and the malice. And Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 shows us why this concept of passive forgiveness is so important. Because the absence of forgiveness, folks, is the presence of evil. If we don't forgive... What will, what will end up being there is bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, clamor, 
evil speaking. There are Christians all around this world who are living in bitterness and resentment and anger toward people who have wronged them or someone that they have, have, someone that they love. And if we withhold our forgiveness until a person asks for it or until they earn it, then we will without, without fail end up living in a, in, in a state of unforgiveness. There will be in our hearts some level of anger, bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking, malice. But what happens if they never seek forgiveness? What happens if they never ask for it, if they never even want it? Well, if you don't forgive them passively, then you spend the rest of your life under their power, don't you? Living in anger, living in unforgiveness, living in bitterness, not because of you, but because they won't come to you and ask for forgiveness. They now have power over you. Your spirit is now being held down by the actions of others. What if the offender is long dead and can't come and, and ask for forgiveness? What if the offender is far away? What if the offender doesn't remember the offense or doesn't even know they've done it to you? If you bind your forgiveness to their worth, their being worthy of it, or to their asking for it, then you might forever live in bitterness and unforgiveness toward them. And this won't hurt them. Some of them don't even know that they need it. It won't hurt them if they want to punish you by not asking forgiveness, but who will it hurt? You. It'll hurt you. It won't trouble them, but your spirit will remain in this place of anger, of uneasiness, of clamor. You'll reside in anger and bitterness and resentment because of them. And when you refuse to release another, though they have not asked for it or deserve it, what you're doing is you are binding your spirit. You're binding its health, its peace, and its vigor to their actions. You're placing yourself entirely under their power. But if you put off the old man by living in this state of passive forgiveness, whereby you're putting off bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking and clamor and malice, and instead you put on tender-hearted, kind forgiveness, you free yourself from them. You free your spirit from these emotional dangers. Whether they ever ask for forgiveness or not, you're freed from it. Whether they ever deserve forgiveness or not, you are freed from it. It's about freeing you. Passive forgiveness is not about freeing them. It's about freeing you. Active forgiveness is about freeing them. Release them from their offenses, not for their sake, but for God's sake and for your own. Bitterness will have nothing to hold on to if you've forgiven them. Anger will have nothing to hold on to if it gives way to compassion. Wrath will give way to joy and to peace. Passive forgiveness is about your relationship with God, not about your relationship with the offender. It's about living in the grace, the joy, and the peace which God has purchased through you, through his, for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's about appropriating that example in your own life. And this leads us to the concept of active forgiveness. If passive forgiveness is focused upon the fellowship between you and God and your spirit being right in itself, active forgiveness is focused upon fellowship with the offender, fellowship with that person, getting things right on a physical plane. While passive forgiveness will release you, it does very little to restore fellowship with the person who offended you. And this is where our passage comes in in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. We read it already. The forgiveness mentioned here is, a, is not just a different concept, but a very different word in the Greek. It speaks of a very different concept. While passive forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32 spoke of a gracious and voluntary forgiveness, whether or not a person ever asked for it or deserved it, the word in this context, the, the, word, the, the concept I'm calling active forgiveness, is completely conditioned upon the willingness of the offender to repent of their wrongdoing. And once again, this mirrors the believer's relationship with God. 
God purchases forgiveness for all men on the cross through Jesus Christ. We come to him. We are saved by grace through faith. And then as we live this Christian life, we can fall out of fellowship with God. And when we fall out of fellowship with God, we renew that fellowship through confession. Through confession. And then God forgives us. We call this fellowship, right? When we're walking without anything between us and God, this is fellowship. First John tells us about this fellowship. He says this in First John 1, verses 6 through 9, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with him, that would be God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here it is. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John is not written to unbelievers teaching them how to be saved. First John is written to believers teaching them how to have fellowship, fullness of joy. And here he says the way to restore fellowship when you're out of fellowship is to confess your sin. And when you repent of your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you, to restore fellowship with you. This is what we call here fellowship, uh, what is called walking in the Spirit in Galatians 5. And in John 15, it's called abiding in Christ. The concept of abiding in Christ is given uh, as the concept of a vine and a branch in John 15. I'm going to use a trunk and a branch in order for us to understand the concept a little bit better. As believers, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are placed into Christ by what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally comes into us, indwells us, so that the power of God is able to flow through us, thus giving us the desire to do right and enabling us, giving us the capacity to do right. We are connected to the tree of God when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We become a branch on that tree. Jesus uses this analogy, as I mentioned in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the husband and I'm the vine. Ye are the branches. We don't have a lot of vines around here, like grapevines and such. So we'll say trunk and branches. It'll serve our purposes just fine. Jesus is the trunk. We are the branches that are connected to him by means of salvation. Like with any branch, the leaves and the fruit grow on the branches, but only to the extent that they are receiving nutrients from the trunk, right? The trunk is pulling up nutrients from the ground, water from the ground. It is coming up through the trunk, and then every branch that's connected to the trunk then is going to receive those nutrients, and leaves will grow, and fruit will be born. If in the middle of summer, you look up at a tree, and you see a branch that has no leaves on it, you see a branch that has no fruit on it, it's because that branch is no longer receiving nutrients from the tree. It died. Now, if I sever the connection of a branch, let's say I look at a branch and it's looking good and I take a saw and I saw off a branch and I throw that branch on the ground, I will not expect to continue to see leaves and fruit budding on that branch because that branch has been severed from the tree. When a branch is severed from its life source, its source of nutrients, it has no nutrients any longer. It has no capacity to grow. The branch is only a channel through which the nutrients of the tree are fed so that the fruit can grow upon it. Jesus says you and I are branches. We are not asked by God to be righteous. We are not asked by God to do moral things. We are not asked by God to produce righteousness in and of ourselves. We are asked by God to abide in Him, to stay connected to the trunk. And as we stay connected to the trunk... As we are abiding in Him, His righteousness flows through us. His power flows through us, and His fruit is born out in us. We will do right, because God's Spirit is in control. And for this reason, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How is it that we conquer sin in our lives? How is it that we avoid the lust of the flesh? How is it that we avoid sin? It's by walking in the Spirit, by staying connected to the tree, staying connected to Christ, abiding in Him, confessing our sin when we do wrong so that we can remain attached, so that we can stay in fellowship with, 
so that we can have his power and his spirit empowering us, flowing through us. When you are in fellowship, you will not sin because you are in the spirit and the spirit is producing your thoughts, your actions, your desires. To this end, back in 1 John 1, where we read about fellowship, by submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God, we fool ourselves if we think that we as believers do not sin, John says. But, and here is how fellowship is maintained, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word forgive there is the same word we see in Luke 17. The word which means to send away, to release. It's not the word that's rooted in grace that we see in Ephesians 4.32, but it's a word that means I am consciously sending away. It's an active forgiveness. It's a personal release conditioned upon the repentance of the offender. As unbelievers, the sole condition for salvation is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But as believers, we are called to confess our sins in order that we might receive active forgiveness and so maintain fellowship with God. Has nothing to do with salvation. First John doesn't. Has everything to do with maintaining fellowship with God for the sake of his power flowing through us. And take special note of this important fact that when we ask, we receive. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins every time, immediately and totally. There's nothing in the Bible about us having to earn back fellowship and trust. There's nothing in the Bible about us having to work our way back into favor with God. When we confess our sins, he forgives us. He cleanses us. Fellowship is restored. Now let's translate these truths into our lives in the concept of active forgiveness. Jesus says that if a brother trespass against you, that you need to rebuke him. We're to make known offenses against us. If somebody has wronged you, hurt you, offended you in some way, and they have not come to make it right with you, you need to at least make it known to them that they have wronged you. So often, so many of the wrongs that we have in our lives are things that we're holding against somebody that they don't even know that they did. Sometimes it's because we redefine word. My, my wife grew up in the South and I grew up in Colorado and um, there are some different meanings to some words between the two. So there were a few times early on in our marriage where I would say something and my wife got hurt by it and it wouldn't have hurt someone in my family out in Colorado. But the way that that word, kind of the way it's flavored or glossed in, in uh, the South, it hurt her. It meant something different to her. But if she had never told me, she could have just sat in bitterness and anger over something I didn't even know I did. Truth is so important to the believer. We must operate in truth. Many people, they get angry at Pastor Wickler or they get angry at the church for something that Pastor Wickler said or, or, or did or that they perceive he said or did without ever even talking to me. And they leave the church and they start saying, well, Pastor Wickler believes this or Pastor Wickler said that or Pastor Wickler did this. And I, it gets back to me in one way or another, and I, I just sit there and I think, I wish they'd have talked to me because we could have easily settled that one. But they didn't. I didn't even know I'd offended. How can I get something right if I don't know I've done wrong? We need to be people of truth. And truth means we need to do that thing where we tell people what's going on. How can I get things right with my wife if she doesn't know that she's wronged me? How can I get things right with my kids if I don't know that I've wronged them? We've got we've to communicate. So Jesus says first, if a man trespasses against you, rebuke him, tell him. Let him know he's done it. So we inform him. And if he repents, Jesus says, forgive him. Well, that's all well and good, Pastor, but, I don't need, but don't I need to wait to see if he really means it? If he, if he, doesn't he need to earn it? No. Doesn't say if he earns it, if he shows himself worthy of it, it says he repents. Now repentance is a concept, change of mind that leads to a change of action. We can look for the fruit of repentance and that will prove to us that there was repentance there. All of that's good, all of that's right. But the idea that you know that they're sorry but you're going to make them work for their forgiveness, that's not found in scripture, folks. Make them earn it through something, through extra something. <laughs> I'm going to give you extra suffering, extra wrong, extra pain to show me that you really mean it? No, that's foreign to the scripture. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that with us? 
God wants us to actually confess our sins. We need, we need to be genuine in our repentance. We can't just pretend that we're sorry or that we can't just pretend that, that we acknowledge our wrongs. That's what confession means, to own up to, to say the same as to acknowledge. We can't just pretend to acknowledge our wrongs but actually not agree with the Lord that it's wrong. We have to be genuine. But aren't you glad God doesn't come back and say, okay, now that I know you're genuine with your, with your repentance, now that I know you're genuine in your confession, um, Earn it. Earn back my favor. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Nor should we. Notice what Jesus says next. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again and say, uh, to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. The number seven is biblically significant, isn't it? The number seven can be literal. It can, always, it can mean a literal seven times, but it is also a number that uh, signifies perfection or completion. Often when we see the number seven used, it's a metaphor for something which is in its entirety or it's complete. Jesus says here that if he were to trespass a complete number of times, a perfect number of times, uh, any number of times, when Peter was asking in Matthew, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Till seven times. Jesus said, nay, I say unto you, till 70 times seven times, right? Heightening that number, 490 times. The idea is using seven and 70, both of which have that seven idea, um, to amplify the idea that you should always forgive. Always, 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 always forgive. When a person asks for it, you give it. Give it. Restore that relationship. Always be seeking to restore relationships. This forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance, but it is absolute in scope, and it is expected by God. Thou shalt forgive him, Jesus says. How often have you sinned against God, gone to him for forgiveness and received it? Then done the same thing again. God does not reject your repentance the next time. Are we greater than our Lord? Do we have the right to demand more than God demands of us? Do we have the right to withhold what our Lord does not withhold? Indeed, we do not. We can do this. We can withhold forgiveness. But take special note of Jesus' warning in regard to an attitude toward those who withhold forgiveness from their brethren, who withhold forgiveness from those who seek it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, this is that active forgiveness word. In the Greek, it's the idea not of forgiveness unto salvation, but forgiveness unto fellowship. Take note of that word. God warns that if we refuse to release men for their offenses against us when they seek our forgiveness, that God will not release us from ours when we seek His either. That God will not restore our fellowship when we come to Him if we are living in unforgiveness toward others. God will impute our lack of forgiveness for others' offenses upon our own offenses toward Him. That's a stern warning and one that we need to take very carefully. If you do not forgive others, if you do not restore fellowship with others when they seek it, do not expect God to restore fellowship with you when you, when you seek it. To that end, we are always to forgive others. So we have two forms of forgiveness. Passive forgiveness, no condition, serves to release you from another's offenses. Passive forgiveness is a determination in your heart to release the offenses done against you in order that your mind, your heart, your emotions are not bound by the actions and words of others. Living in an in attitude of unforgiveness so that the Lord may forgive you all of these things. Passive forgiveness is an act of the will entirely for the sake of your relationship with God and your own spiritual well-being. Active forgiveness is conditioned upon the repentance of the offender and serves to release them from the offense in order to restore fellowship. Active forgiveness is a determination in your heart to release the offenses done against you in order that you and the offender might have fellowship and you can love and minister unto them in the manner that God has called you to do. Active forgiveness is an act of the will for the sake of your relationship with others. 
comprised in these two types of forgiveness, we find the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Pass the forgiveness. Do this for the Lord's sake. And the second like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Do it for thy neighbor's sake. Love the Lord. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Release them and you release yourself. Love your neighbor when they come to you for forgiveness. Release them that there might be fellowship between you that there might be nothing, that you might live peaceably with all men. And to this end, we fulfill all the law and the prophets. To this end, we reach the fullness of the divine. And of course, this means that the power to do this comes not from yourself, but from God in you. How can I do this, pastor? You don't know how I've been wronged. You don't know what people have done to me. I can't forgive. That's okay if you can't forgive because you have a God inside of you who loves you and who will give you the capacity to do what he's asking you to do. And we're going to talk about that more in our application. There's much to apply today, so let's get on it. We'll talk about general principles related to both passive and active forgiveness, what forgiveness is, what forgiveness isn't, to help clarify some of the questions that you might have in your mind after this teaching. Point number one, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. A condition of forgiveness, of releasing a person of their offenses, is not that you pretend like what, what happened didn't happen. Forgiveness does not mean that you must place yourself in a position to be hurt again either. It doesn't mean that because you forgive someone, that doesn't mean that you're going to let them take advantage of you again. It doesn't mean that. Forgiveness does not mean that you must put out of your mind the reality that somebody has wronged you. But what forgiveness does mean is that you are no longer factoring that offense into the way that you treat that person. It's clear that God knows we are sinners. You know God knows we're sinners, right? But what God does not do and what God will not do on the day of judgment is factor those sins into his dealings with us. This is the idea that Paul presents as he quotes David. David writing in Psalm 32, Paul quoting it in Romans 4, 6 through 8. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man, not who does not sin, not whose sins have been forgotten, but the man whose sins have not been imputed, who has not had his sins count against him on the day of judgment. The blessed covenant of salvation by grace, when described by the prophet Jeremiah, was given this way in Jeremiah 31 verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It is not that God will forget their sin, but he will not remember their sin. Pastor, what, what's the difference? It is not that the knowledge of sin has passed out of God's consciousness. It is rather that God has chosen to put away the remembrance of that sin in his dealings with us. So when somebody has wronged me, it's not that I forget altogether that what they have done to me. It's that I have put away the offense from them. It's not that I'm going to allow them now to take advantage of me, but it's that I have put away the offense that they did against me. I'm not going to be bitter against them angry with them or treat them negatively because of what they had done to me. Pastor, how do I know that I've forgiven someone? It's not when you've forgotten what they've done to you. Rather, it's when you're able to think upon that interaction or interact with that offender without the former offense becoming, welling up within you everything that was defined in Ephesians chapter 4. When you can think back upon that action, those words, that offense, and it does not bring about in your heart anger, bitterness, resentment, or evil speaking, or evil thoughts, or malice, then you know that you have achieved the fullness of forgiveness. Often when we're wronged, our flesh desires to stew upon that wrong, to dwell upon it. We feel we are entitled 
to run over it in our minds over and over and over again. And there is almost a, a sense of comfort when we do that because it reminds us that we're right and they're wrong and it reminds us of, of, of how we've been wronged. And there's, there's something in our flesh that longs for that. Uh, I was hurt several years ago deeply and for, for, I, I had determined to forgive. And we'll talk about this more in a little bit. And in the months after the wrong and my determination to forgive, I kept running over. I would, I, I would just be doing whatever during the day and I would start running over what happened and running over what I said and what he said and how he wronged me and how he wronged ones that I loved. And then I'd have to stop myself and I'd say, no, that's not right. I need to put it away. And how do I know that I achieved a fullness of forgiveness? Passive, by the way, he's never asked for forgiveness. He's never sought it. I knew I had achieved the fullness when I can think back on him and that circumstance without anger in my heart, without bitterness in my heart, without malice in my heart. And I can love him and I can pray for him, even, th even though I may not trust him again until he gets himself right. I can love him. I can pray for him. And I can think back on that circumstance. And I haven't forgotten what he did to me. And I haven't forgotten what he did to my loved ones, but I can look back on it without anger in my heart. I... I sometimes tear up. There's sometimes sorrow in my heart over the consequences of that day and the, those experiences. But I'm not angry. That's it. That's what we're looking for. When we dwell on the wrongs, when we live in the wrongs, when we entertain the, the anger for our wrongs, all of the ways that we're justified and, and they're guilty, it's a destructive path. It's a path that will ruin you. It's a path that, will, it, that, that, can, that can mangle your spirit. In the context of passive forgiveness, it will engender in you a bitterness and a resentment that can even cause you physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. It can cause your other relationships to be affected. In the context of active forgiveness, it will tear down your relationships, limiting your ministry in the lives of others, and perhaps longer-term damage in the case of a church or a spouse. These things have split churches. These things have split marriages because it festers, because it stays in there, and it creates bitterness and anger and rage, and it gets worse, and it tears you down, and you get tired, and then you think that the solution is to sever yourself from relationships rather than the solution being to restore the relationships. And this, the flesh and the devil can convince us of that if we dwell on it. Forgiveness does not require that you forget. Forgiveness does require that you release. Are there unreleased offenses in your heart today? As I talk today, is the Holy Spirit bringing up something in, in your life, some event, some person, some action, some offense that you've been harboring unforgiveness over? Would, would you humbly release it to the Lord today? First, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Second, forgiveness is defined as much by what is not in your life as what is in your life. We read Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, and we read about bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice. And these are presented in opposition to tenderhearted forgiveness. What this means is that if you're attempting to diagnose whether or not there might still be some unforgiveness in your heart, you don't only want to look for the positive signs. Yes, I forgive. Yes, you're determined to forgive in your mind. But look for the negative signs as well. Is there resentment, bitterness, anger in your heart? If it's there, then it's not fully dealt with yet. Pastor, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know the pain I've been through. You don't know what they took from me. You don't know how they have hurt the ones that I love. You may be right. I may not know. I may not be able to relate to you. But this is what I do know. God knows. God knows what they've done to you. And if God has laid down a principle, that principle exists for your best good. It is not for us to debate with God over the principles. It's for us to obey them. And what we know is this, if we do it God's way, even when it doesn't make sense, even when I don't see the final solution, even when it seems like it might make things worse for me or be to my disadvantage, if it's God's way, if we do what God has asked us to do, there's a blessing there. There's always a blessing there. And that means it's God's best outcome. What do you see coming out of your heart today? 
Is there anger, bitterness, malice, resentment in your heart? If it's there, look for some unforgiveness as well. Would you put off the old man today and put on the new, put off the evil and put on the forgiveness? Point number three. First, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Second, forgiveness is defined as much by what it is not, what is not in your life as what is in your life. Third, forgiveness should never be withheld and is designed to be total in scope. When we follow the example of our Heavenly Father down this road of forgiveness, it becomes apparent quickly that any attempt on our part to withhold genuine, to withhold forgiveness from genuine repentance does not meet the standard for what God has set in our lives. What I've often found in the lives of believers is that they say they have forgiven someone for a word or an action, but then that word and that action comes up again. Let me give you an example of where I noticed this in my life at one time. My wife and I uh, were having uh, a disagreement when we were very young in our, our marriage, and, what, uh, and she had done something that was, she had wronged me, and she had asked my forgiveness. And I told her, yes, I forgive you for that. At that point, it was intended to be released. I should release her from it. Uh, several weeks later, we were, we, we were talking about something or, or I forget all the circumstances. It was a while ago now. But I brought it up again in a manner to use against her. And I'll never forget the hurt look on my wife's face as she looked at me and said, wait a minute, I thought you said you had forgiven me for that. I had told her I had forgiven her and then I used that circumstance against her at a later point. I brought it up again as a weapon in an argument against her. That's not forgiveness, folks. I had not forgiven her. I had not released her if I'm bringing it up again and holding it over her head. That is not forgiveness. It is not forgiveness if we do this. Spouses, we do this often, unfortunately. And it becomes more and more evident in a relationship if you've made yourself more and more vulnerable to someone because they have more to hold up over your head, don't they? The more vulnerable you make yourself to someone, the more dangerous they can be to you emotionally. We ought never, ever hold over the heads of people things for which we have released them from. Thank God God doesn't do that to us. Thank God God doesn't say, yes, I forgive you for that. And then a month later, he brings it up in your heart and says, remember that. If it comes up in your heart again, it's not God. Because God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Pastor, are you saying I am spiritually obligated to forgive? That I don't have the right before God to choose to withhold my forgiveness from any who asks for it, who legitimately repents? That's what Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says. That's what Luke 17, 3 and 4 says. The man or woman of faith will step out in faith in these areas of life just as you would any other and say, God, if you've said it, I'm going to obey it. Well, pastor, it's not that easy. I can say I forgive you, but that doesn't change how I feel about the person. I can say I forgive them. I can say I'm going to forgive them, but it doesn't change my emotions. I can say I have released it, but it doesn't change the fact that my anger and my frustration comes back at me time and time again. And that leads us to our fourth point. Forgiveness is an act of the will that leads your emotions. It is not an act of emotions that leads your will. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is not an act of emotion. The anger, the bitterness, the wrath, those are emotions. It is the flag that tells you that there's still some work to be done in your heart. But the forgiveness itself is an act of your will. No matter how you feel about that person, you must choose to forgive them. And when your heart wants to dwell upon the wrong, wants to dwell upon the things that they've done to you, like I was telling you about my circumstance, it took me months for my emotions to catch up with my, my decision to forgive them. Make the, do, do the work. Go, it could take years. Go through the process. Lead your heart into forgiveness. And when your heart doesn't, uh, when, when your heart wants to replay the offenses, Will away that carnal idea. Bring into captivity those thoughts. And as you exercise your will, your emotions will eventually catch up. For some, this can be a process, as I mentioned, of weeks, months, even years, of willing your emotions to catch up 
depending on how badly you've been wronged and for how long. But every time, the heart and emotions will follow the will. And if you're patient and you stick to it, you'll find that those feelings of anger and hatred and wrath and frustration and bitterness will fade as your emotions align with your will. The danger, and this danger is very pronounced in this age in particular, because in this age, we are emotionally driven. Arguments are emotionally driven. Everything is emotionally driven in this age. This age allows how we feel to justify how we act, doesn't it? But this is spiritually dangerous ground. We know this, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If your will acts at the behest of your emotions, if your emotions are driving your actions and your will, you are an unstable person. You live life like this. This is how you live life if your emotions determine your actions. It's not how God has called us to live. You'll be led into sin. You will be led into sin. Take note. Your heart is eminently deceivable. And your will must lead your heart. Your will must lead your emotions or your emotions will tear you down, destroy you. They will ruin your relationship with God. They will ruin your relationships with others. Have you ever wondered why it seems harder for women to forgive than men? Why it's harder for women to release than men? It's because this process is more difficult in the fairer sex. Because you all have emotional propensities. That's how God has created you. You're more emotional. Therefore, it's more difficult. That's why it's more difficult for women to forgive. Men, have you ever had, a, had, had something with someone, a neighbor or whatnot, and it's done between you and him, but your wife, for your sake, is still angry at him? And you say, oh, look, my wife really does love me. Why is she struggling more than you when it was against you? Because that's how God has created women. That's okay. But we need to be careful that our emotions are not leading our will as it relates particularly to this area of forgiveness. Final point. Forgiveness is an act of faith that trusts God to be the ultimate judge. Pastor, are you really telling me that I just need to let people get away with stuff? That passively I need to act in forgiveness toward people that don't deserve it and who have never asked for it? That uh, not, not passively, aggressively holding things against them? Not punishing them in little ways? You know, that I'm a transplant. I'm not Minnesota-born. But learning about the concept of Minnesota nice has been enlightening to me. Because Minnesota nice, I mean, the people up here are really nice to your face. But Minnesota nice also has this passive-aggressive background thing to it, where people can be just horrible on the other end of that. And I'm not saying it's just here. It's, it's, it's everywhere. But there's something, I think, about the German-Scandinavian up here that's just got a bit of that in the culture. Minnesota nice, the passive-aggressive type of nice, is not what we're talking about here not punishing them in little ways while smiling to their face, not passive-aggressively holding things against them, not giving little hints of your displeasure. That's not forgiveness, folks. Truly acting in love and forgiveness toward them. Do you, are you saying that I actively, I need to seek genuine reconciliation with everyone who seeks it of me in this life? That if everything is going as it should, there should be not one relationship in my entire life that I can point to and say that there's a rift because of my choices or because of my end? If I do this, pastor, they're just going to get away with everything. I don't want them to get away with it. They aren't going to get away with anything. Because forgiveness is not an act of injustice. Forgiveness is an act of yielding your justice to a higher court, to a higher authority, to a higher judge. Often unforgiveness is an extension of our desire to punish a person for what they have done to us or to our loved ones. But this is not our privilege. It's our privilege to yield that right unto the Lord and to allow the Lord to deal with those people. God can handle it far better than you can. I guarantee it. Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is the Lord's. Can you trust that if you yield as God has asked you to today, vengeance and you forgive, that God can deal with them? And that God can do a better job of avenging you than you could possibly do avenging yourself? To that end, God says, forgive, and it is ours but to obey. To will ourselves to obey the Lord, knowing that in obedience is blessing and in obedience is happiness. Forgiveness calls us to love God and to love others. Forgiveness calls us to lay our cares before the Lord, to yield them to Him. And so it is we ask as we close today. How are you doing in regard to forgiveness, folks? Passive forgiveness. Are you forgiving all men for the Lord's sake, whether they ever ask for it or not, whether they deserve it or not, is forgiveness in your heart? Active forgiveness. Are you forgiving all when they ask for it in genuine repentance, maintaining strong relationships and fellowship with others for ministry and service? Are you yielding these rights to the Lord, trusting that if you do it God's way, God can handle the rest? I'm not telling you to get taken advantage of. I'm not telling you that you have to forget. I'm not telling you you can't be hurt by what was done to you. These are not things that the Bible says, but are you forgiving? On the authority of God's word, if you'll do this, it will not just mean you're obeying God and pleasing God. It will mean your release. Spiritually, emotionally, from things that can lead you down a path that you do not want to go. Let's close in prayer.